Joseph, dearest Joseph mine, help me cradle the child divine. God reward thee and all that's thine in paradise. So praise the Virgin Mary. Gladly, dear one lady mine, help I cradle this child of thine. God's own light on us both shall shine in paradise as praise the Virgin Mary. Hi, welcome to Catholic Vitamins with Deacon Tom. And Dee. Welcome to our Christmas edition. And this is Catholic Vitamin S for Sabbath. You said it right. Yay! This is episode 466 for the World Wide Web and episode 114 for our local Catholic radio station. APIH 98.9. Joseph, dearest Joseph mine, help me cradle the child divine. Welcome to Catholic Vitamins, your dose of spiritual supplements from A to Z. Catholic Vitamins, specially formulated to help you achieve optimum spiritual health. It's time to energize your faith, forget what lies behind, and press on toward the goal. We've already won. Here are your hosts for Catholic Vitamins, Deacon Tom Fox and his lovely wife, Dee. Well, that opening music was a little different for uh, Tom and Dee on our Catholic Vitamins show. That was from Kate Daniluk and a series of products that uh, they called Making Music, Praying Twice. And Kate Daniluk was a guest on Catholic Vitamins back in 2013, Dee. Do you remember when she was a guest? I do. And, I remember uh, all the music. Yeah. They have a series of albums and family-oriented products that are just wonderful. We haven't been in touch with them for years, but I did check. They're still active and there's still products available online. And uh, you can go to www.makingmusicprayingtwice and they have seasonal um, things for Christmas and other liturgical seasons, and uh, as well as commercial seasons. And wonderful things for children. Absolutely. And their, and their parents to join with them right. if they wish. They have products that uh, help the children to visualize a lot of what they sing about. So it's really, really nice. Making Music, Praying Twice, and that was Kate Danilock. We have a couple other songs that we'll feature with them in a few moments. Dee, our guest... Dr. John Bergsma, a return professor from Franciscan University. He uh, is a uh, professor of theology. He's twice been voted faculty of the year by graduating classes at Franciscan. He holds three degrees in ancient languages and theology from Calvin College and Seminary. He used to be a Protestant pastor and uh, he has a doctorate in ancient Christianity and Judaism from the University of Notre Dame. He's a specialist in the Old Testament and the Dead Sea Scrolls, but this is far from being 
a quiet, old subject to talk about because our interview time with Dr. Bergsman today is based on a new book, an exciting book, Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls, Revealing the Jewish Roots of Christianity. We'll be talking about the book during our interview time, and we were blessed, really, really blessed, to receive a uh, promotional copy to give away free to one of our listeners at uh, Catholic Vitamins. I've actually been watching him. He's done a couple guest meditation spots for some of the resources that I've been listening to during Advent. Is that right? Yes. Speaking of Advent D, one of the things that we did, you and I, and I enjoy when we do these things together, one of the things we did is we did the rosary with um, Chris Stefanik Chris and his family. And his family. So here are the, his wife, a lovely wife, and uh, the children of varying ages. I think in the first rosary that we did with them, they had a daughter, I believe daughter and son-in-law, if I remember the organization, but they also had a baby it's for his first grand, their first grandchild. Can, can you believe Chris Stefanik is a grandfather? Well, you know, he posted somewhere. Oh, on Facebook, he posted. He says he highly recommends getting married early if you have the <laughs> right person because he says being a young grandfather is just the best. Absolutely. <laughs> if you are not uh, tied in one way or another with Chris Stefanik, we really highly recommend it. And I have been doing his daily Advent reflections that he's been doing with Cardinal Consola Mesa. I've talked about that on our previous show. I just so much enjoy it. One or two of these daily segments that he's done have had me in tears. They've been so powerful and so beautiful. Did you say his name of his ministry? Real Life Catholic. Yes, thank you for that help. Thank you for that help, Dee. Well, we're going to do something else by Kate Danluck that's a little bit on the smile side of things. And the reason for this is... Not very long ago today, just before Tom and Dee came home and started working on this, we were with a young, rambunctious family of four that we love. And uh, this song that we're about ready to play is Christmas-oriented, but it'll make you smile and you'll know why we picked it. Trying to be good, we're trying to be good. Get ready for Christmas, trying to be good. Trying to be good, we're trying to be good. Get ready for Christmas, trying to be good. Mary Ann, are you trying to be good? Yes, dear Santa, I'm trying to be good. Sophie, dear, do you listen to your mom? Santa, I try to listen to my mom. Trying to be good, we're trying to be good. Get ready. For Christmas, trying to be good. Dear Cosette, do you always say your prayers? Santa, I try to always say my prayers. Dennis, do you help clean up all the toys? Yes, Santa, I do pick up all my toys. Trying to be good, we're trying to be good. Get ready for Christmas, trying to be good. Trying to be good. We're trying to be good. Get ready for Christmas. Well, dear, I'm trying to be good. Are you trying to be good? <laughs> That's so cute. It really, really is. That is the uh, Kate Denleck, um feature of making music, praying twice. And uh, we'll do one more song from their series. It's Christmas oriented. And I'm sure that you will like it. So, uh, dear, we were talking about uh, doing the rosary with uh, the Stefanik right. family. 
And it's a scriptural rosary, so you and I are used to doing that. We've been doing that in the home here for years, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. even back in Colorado. But you were going to mention that we also do the rosary ourselves in the car anytime we start out somewhere on a, a trip. Yes, And yes. actually, every Saturday morning, as we're heading, what, 15 miles north for breakfast? Yes. We do the rosary on the way up. It's just long enough. We get it just finished. As we're pulling into, yeah. as we're pulling into the town, <clears throat> so we use the uh, renewal—not renewal—the uh, relevant radio, relevant radio uh, <laughs> recorded rosary off their app, and they have a 15-minute version and a 28-minute version that has meditations with it, and uh, I use those often when I'm exercising. But I think the point that Dee brought up that I want to encourage is um, starting anything with the rosary if you have time to do so is a great idea. And if you don't have time for a whole rosary, how about a decade as a family or you and the children if you're going someplace in your car? Hey, I started to feel like Christmas was actually coming into our house. Oh, oh, why is that? Well, because you made a trip to the valley yesterday and you had a couple store stops that you did before you came back up. Yes. And one of them was Trader Joe's. And what did you get? They're called Kringles, (laughs) Dee. As as anybody in our listening audience worldwide ever heard of Kringles, <clears throat> they're a pastry product made in Wisconsin. Yes. And uh, we found out about them because our daughter, Mary, is gifted with those every year from her company, O'Reilly Auto Parts. She's in their corporate offices. That's what they gift it to their upper management people. Every year at Christmas, and she used to share hers with us. Still does, actually. Yeah, and we really, really love them. But we found out from someone else that uh, Trader Joe's, at least in the Phoenix area, carries these. And um, we're not allowed to uh, endorse commercial products, but we sure like (laughs) like Kringles a lot. And we had our first taste this morning. We did. (laughs) Early this morning. Dear friends, uh, one of our correspondents that we enjoy, we promote, We've been blessed to know, meet personally, is Tony Agnesi, and here is his Christmas reflection. Christmas Day is fast approaching. For many people, it's the happiest and most joyful time of the year. Hi, this is Tony Agnesi. The family assembles for a fantastic meal. The Christmas tree is surrounded by gifts. And the relief that shopping and gift wrapping is finally over and everyone can relax. The time to enjoy the day. You know, for others, Christmas can be the saddest time of year. Their minds turn to a loved one that they lost this year, a parent, a grandparent, a spouse, or a close friend. This is especially true if they lose a loved one during the holidays. That feeling can be relived for many years that follow. There are those people who lose their jobs at year's end as companies downsize to meet the challenge of an uncertain new year. Others have been unemployed and the job search hasn't turned up any leads. Those people are more concerned about making the mortgage payment and feeding their family than they are about the gifts that they don't need and can't afford. Other people suffer from social isolation and are alone at the holidays. The elderly in nursing homes, men and women serving in the military thousands of miles from home, and those who have started a new career far from family and can't make it home for the holidays. Still others, 
It's a separation or divorce that changes the dynamic of the season for all affected by it. Whatever the circumstances, the thought of a Merry Christmas is the farthest thing from their mind. Well, what can you do if you are saddened by any of these things? Here's a few suggestions. If you are alone or lonely, find out if your church or community center is having a get-together and make it a point to attend. Second, volunteer at a homeless shelter or soup kitchen, serving others and trying to engage them in conversation. Third, call some old friends on the phone simply to wish them a Merry Christmas. You might find that they're lonely too, and you'll be a blessing to them. Fourth, try to think of the positive things that God has blessed you with this past year. Often counting our blessings can take our mind off the things that are making us sad. And fifth, attend Mass on Christmas. Focus your thoughts on the real meaning of Christmas. It will help in more ways than I can describe. And what can the rest of us do to help? First, be kind. Understand that not everyone finds the holidays as joyful and happy as you might. Think of someone in your family or community that will be alone. Invite them to dinner. Boost their spirits with laughs and conversations. And third, if there's an activity in your church or community that you'll be attending, invite someone to come along. A Christmas concert, a luncheon, or gift exchange might just make their day happier. As you enjoy Christmas with your family and friends, let's not forget those who are lonely, sad, bereaved, without jobs, family and friends, or even hope. During Advent, I pray daily for those people who find Christmas a difficult time of year. I pray that their hearts will be healed, that jobs will be found, that men and women in the military will return safely to their loved ones. I pray for the alone and lonely in nursing homes and elsewhere. I pray for those with life-threatening illnesses who are worried that this might be their last Christmas. And I pray for those with mental illnesses and depression, that the Lord bless them in a special way this Christmas. And I pray for you too, my friends. May God bless you and heap his abundant blessing upon you and grant you his precious gift of peace. Merry Christmas. This is Tony Agnesi. Next up on Catholic Vitamins, we are blessed once again to be with Dr. John Bergsma, professor at Franciscan University. He's been a guest on our show before, and we've actually talked about the Dead Sea Scrolls, but we have a different context of talking about them today. And the context is a new book entitled Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls. Dr. Bergsma, welcome back to Catholic Vitamins. 
It's great to be with you again, Deacon. Well, thank you. Um, Doctor, I've, uh, I've been with you as we've discussed the Dead Sea Scrolls before, and I had no idea that we were going to be able to bring something, you were going to be able to bring something so new and sort of revolutionary out of the idea of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, <clears throat> for those who have heard of them before, for those who know there's something about some scrolls that were found, would you do a sort of a flyover of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls and then what it opened up into? Sure. So some Bedouin shepherds uh, were exploring a cave uh, back in uh, probably January of 1947 and came across some old scrolls in some jars that they didn't think much of and later tried to sell to some antiquities dealers in Bethlehem. They sold them for 100 bucks. They eventually made their way to uh, the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and, and also to uh, Johns Hopkins in Maryland, and they were recognized for what they were, which was um, copies of the scriptures from before the time of Christ. Uh, in fact, one of the scrolls they found was the complete book of uh, the prophet Isaiah, uh, dating from about 250 years before our Lord was born. So that was an astounding realization of the value of these ancient scrolls that have been discovered, the oldest copies of Scripture ever found. And so the, the race was on, and for about 10 years uh, through the 1950s, uh, they continually went down to examine the area. They ended up finding 11 caves that had scrolls in them. Turned out to be the remains of the library of a essentially what was a Jewish monastic order that had a monastery on the shores of the Dead Sea during the lifetime of Jesus and the Apostles. So that was absolutely astounding, and we're still trying to digest the importance of these, uh, these books that they had in their library, as it were, and, and for our understanding of the Scriptures and ancient Judaism. So this group... Uh of what size the Essenes um, were a group that lived outside of the mainstream of Judaism at that time? Yes. So the Essenes were one of the three major sects, or we might call them today denominations, uh, of the Jews in the time of our Lord. The other two are better known to us because they're mentioned uh, explicitly in the Gospels, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Now, the Essenes are also present in the Gospels, but they're not named by that name. Um, but they were, a, again, a denomination of the Jews in the time of our Lord. Um, they had thousands of adherents all through uh, the land of Israel, uh, but they were the only group that practiced celibacy and monasticism, and the only monastery of theirs that we've uncovered uh, by archaeology is this one located uh, on the shores of the Dead Sea that that gave us the scrolls. So they were a fascinating group. So um, <clears throat> the discovery of the scrolls, uh, do I remember a number of something like a thousand? That's correct. There were uh, the remains of what once were uh, a thousand complete scrolls. Um, most of them had damage, 
and some of them were quite fragmentary, but uh, yeah, we figure originally there were a thousand scrolls in this library. So what would be the content of the scrolls, and we want to work our way into your book, but what would be the content of the scrolls in the life of these people? Sure. Well, among the scrolls, about a quarter of them were copies of the books of the Bible, and then about three-quarters were their own writings, and they were everything that you might imagine would be in a monastery library. They were uh, commentaries on Scripture, uh, lectionaries, um, prophecies, uh, end times predictions, uh, several copies of their rule of life, uh, which describe their beliefs and their practices as a community. Um, and then, uh, calendars, uh, of the liturgical year, uh, and on and on. All the different kinds of, uh, genre of, uh, religious writing that you might find that you might expect that monks would have. So, um, the, the thrust of your book, and I've, I've watched, I believe it's four of the videos, uh, <clears throat> where you and Father Pavanka are talking about the book. I, I've watched four of these, and what's unfolding is that we see um, the beginnings or, or the practice of our Catholic faith. Uh, sort yes. of do documented in the life of these early believers. <clears throat> Can you begin to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, we see many features of this Jewish monastic group that, as Christians, we're very familiar with. For example, uh, they daily would gather, uh, dress in white robes, and uh, plunge their whole bodies into um, ritual baths. We would, we would call them baptismals. And then after washing like that, they would go into an upper room and they would share a meal of bread and wine and, you know, perhaps a few other kinds of food, but primarily bread and wine. And that was a sacred meal that was performed in a liturgical way uh, and led by a priest. So, you know, as Christians, we look at that and we say, wow, that sounds a lot like baptism and Eucharist. Not completely identical, of course, but uh, what we see is among the, this group of um, very devout uh, Jewish men uh, that lived right before or during the time of our Lord, already what we might think of as uh, early forms of the sacraments or, or anticipations of the sacraments are beginning to be practiced. You know, the idea of washing in water for the forgiveness of sins the idea of a sacred meal of bread and wine with Messiah, these things are developing. And so, you know, Deacon, that, that makes, you know, it makes the Gospels a little more understandable, I think, because we see that, uh, you know, the words and actions of our Lord uh, aren't like a, a lightning bolt out of the blue that nobody could have understood, but actually the Judaism of the time was, was moving in that direction, and our Lord was building on things that the Holy Spirit had already been leading uh, the Jews to begin to do. So um, let's let's talk about uh, the the waters, their sacred waters, symbolic of mm -hmm. uh, baptism. At that time, mm -hmm. wasn't John the Baptist? You know, just at the beginning of the ministry of Christ, wasn't John the Baptist out and doing work, baptizing? Absolutely. He sure was. 
And, you know, almost everything that John the Baptist does and says um, seems to have some connection uh, with the uh, theology or the practices of this uh, monastery. You know, one of the one of the most striking is that when you read in the Dead Sea Scrolls, you find that the monks quote Isaiah 40, verse 3, uh, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. They quote that as justification for why they went out into the wilderness and formed their community out there. They're out there in the desert on the shores of the Dead Sea, preparing the way for the Messiah. And that, of course, is also how John the Baptist identifies himself. And I think that's too similar, Deacon, to just be a coincidence. Um, Really, I think that John the Baptist was probably raised uh, at that monastery, either because Zachariah and Elizabeth felt too old, or maybe they they passed away in his his childhood, and his relatives uh, sent him out. But we know that the monks uh, did raise orphans and other boys uh, from the larger community, and that's how they got their vocations. So I very much suspect that John the Baptist was raised at that monastery and then and then left to take that message of preparation for the Messiah to a larger audience. <laughs> so let me uh, give you a chance to grab a little water there and ask a question. You know, you've mentioned the desert uh, two or three times in our moments together here, and yet you're, you're talking about them sort of using a baptismal-like ceremony in pools of water. Where, where did the water come from? <laughs> That's a great question. Very practical question. So um, the Dead Sea area, of course, speaking, is very dry. We're all aware of that. But what we're less aware of is that generally there's about two weeks of heavy rain uh, in the winter, uh, in December and January. Um, maybe not all at once, but about 14 days all told in the year, they'll get thunderstorms that somehow make it over the mountains and then dump their rain on uh, on the far side there, and it goes down ultimately and flows into the Dead Sea. Now, these monks were clever, and they built aqueducts back up into the hills uh, that connected to the natural uh, streams that would run when there were uh, thunderstorms. And so by that means, they were able to collect uh, all the rain that fell in their area uh, during those times of heavy rain in the winter, and that filled up all their cisterns. They had about a dozen cisterns, um, you know, connected in their community, and it would all fill up by natural rainwater in the winter every year uh, during normal years, and that was enough water for them uh, for the entire year. Wow. (laughs) Just as a side note, only because it came to my mind, um, have you been there? Are, are there any remnants of this civilization and the, and the uh, water management system? Oh, it, yeah, indeed. Um, there are some aqueducts that run back up into the hills that are still in pretty good shape. Uh, and there's also um, several of these uh, cisterns and uh, uh, bathing pools, ritual baths, uh, that are very, very much intact with uh, much of the original plastering and so on still there. And uh, we can see that they were very uh, skilled, very professional about it, and, and really knew what they were doing. Wonderful. <clears throat> Wonderful. 
Well, in the, in the time that we have, I would like to cover some more things. You, you mentioned the meal as sort of a sacred meal. <clears throat> who could mm-hmm. who could come to the sacred meal, and um, do we see in it the uh, the beginnings of the Eucharist? Excuse me. <clears throat> yes, uh, I think we can properly say that. You know, at first I was hesitant to connect it to the Eucharist, but Deacon, it's very clear from the scrolls and also other historical writings from this period that they began and ended. Um, this sacred meal with songs of thanksgiving. And if we translate it into Greek, it's literally Eucharisto. Okay. It's, it's, it's the word for Thanksgiving. That's what Eucharist means is Thanksgiving. So they, they began and they ended this meal with, uh, with Psalms of Thanksgiving. Um, the, the meal was eaten in thanks to God for, having brought them into what they considered to be the New Covenant. They were already, already using this language, New Covenant. I would say they were getting ahead of themselves in salvation history, but they thought that they were in the New Covenant. And uh, only, only those who had been fully initiated into the New Covenant were allowed to participate in this meal. They all had to sit by rank, and the priest had to bless the food and lead it, otherwise it wasn't valid. And uh, it's just so striking, Deacon, because you know, we don't have the time to go into it in detail now, but if you read the gospel descriptions of the celebration of the Lord's Supper, there's so many similarities. You know, Jesus as priest leading the meal, blessing the bread and the wine, the, um, the disciples trying to sit by rank, but then arguing amongst each other about who, who outranks whom, um, and, and all these other features. Uh, so, yeah, I would say, you know, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, they were being led in the direction of the Eucharist already. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> uh, Dr. Bergsma, um, what about the upper room? I believe there was a story about the upper room <clears throat> in the New Testament and its relationship to the <clears throat> to the room where the Essenes had the meal. Yes. Yes, it seems like the Essenes also went up into a second-story room uh, for their meal. Um, but, uh, but there's also another interesting connection, uh, in Mark, uh, 14, the account of the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, we see this young man who's wearing nothing but a linen, uh, cloth and, uh, he runs away naked when they grab his, his linen clothing. Um, tradition tells us that that's John Mark, the author of the gospel himself, who was a young man kind of tailing along after the apostles on the night of our Lord's arrest. But that habit of wearing just a single linen garment that Mark describes there in Mark 14, 51 and 52, that was how the Essenes dressed. So it's very probable that uh, St. Mark was an Essene before he eventually converted and, you know, wrote a gospel, etc. And then in Acts, we find out that his mother's house was actually where the Last Supper was celebrated. Um, so that gives us a, a kind of an Essene connection right there uh, with um, Jesus' celebration of Last Supper. So I suspect that historically, in Passion Week, Jesus went to the neighborhood of Jerusalem where the Essenes lived and celebrated his last Passover in their neighborhood because they were they were pacifists, Deacon. They weren't violent, and, and Jesus didn't have... Uh, an argument with them, whereas the Sadducees and the Pharisees were both hostile uh, to our Lord, and so he avoided those parts of Jerusalem. 
And so there was a guest room that was available in that area where Jesus would it, do the Last Supper. Indeed, and, and the Essenes made a practice of hospitality as uh, a religious uh, act. You know, they, they felt very strongly the, um, the need to be hospitable, hospitable to strangers because it's commanded in the Law of Moses. And so they, they ran um, houses for the poor and uh, for unwed mothers and orphans and so on. And one of, their, one of their acts of hospitality was to have rooms available for persons who might otherwise be on the street, as it were. And so um, our Lord seems to call upon their hospitality in, during Passion Week uh, for a place to celebrate uh, the Passover with his own disciples. How beautiful. How absolutely beautiful. Mm -hmm. Well, um, can you share with us some more, uh, just in an overview sense, of what other uh, things you've raised in your book, Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls? Yes, there's so many uh, ways that uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls fill in gaps and, and flesh out parts of the New Testament that otherwise seem rather obscure. Uh, just to quickly mention one, Deacon, um, you know, there's, the, the Reformation broke out over an argument over what St. Paul means in the epistles to the Romans and Galatians by his phrase, works of the law. And uh, we all know that uh, St. Paul says we're not saved by works of the law, but we're saved by faith in Christ in Romans and Galatians. But what does that mean, works of the law? Well, you know, Luther thought it meant, you know, good works in general or, or any human effort. Um, but Thomas Aquinas and, and the Catholic tradition said, no, that he probably means the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, things like circumcision and keeping kosher. And sure enough, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, Deacon, we find a document that uses this phrase, works of the law, and applies it uh, to all these ceremonial laws, things like, again, keeping kosher and washings and Sabbath observance and so on. It's not moral issues, but it's those ritual issues that the, that the Jews use this term, works of law, to refer to. So it really sheds light on what St. Paul means there. And that actually... Uh, surprisingly confirms um, a long-standing Catholic interpretation of St. Paul that he's not saying that we don't need to behave morally in order to be saved, but rather that we're no longer under all of these rituals that Moses commanded because we've been freed from those by Christ. Beautiful. <clears throat> Absolutely beautiful. Um because we're in the season of Advent, Dr. Bergsma, uh, I want to back up in a sense to um, the fact that this this group of people, this, the Essenes, were waiting for the Messiah. And I mm -hmm. wonder if, if I wonder if you could talk about their understanding of who the Messiah might be, or what he might be, and when he was coming. How immediate was it? Sure. Yes. The, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's good to talk about them during Advent because they spent their whole lives in a perpetual Advent. You know, they were, uh, they were out there uh, in the desert uh, waiting for the Messiah literally to show up, and they figured that he might come at any time. Um, now, they weren't exactly sure on, 
on the way the Messiah would come. They, um, some of their writings, they expect two Messiahs, uh, one, from a, one from the priestly line and one from the royal line. And then others of their writings expect just basically one uh, Messiah figure who would be like Melchizedek um, from the book of Genesis and be both a priest and a king all wrapped in one. And uh, it's so fascinating, uh, Deacon, because um, the Gospel of Luke uh, seems to answer both expectations um, for those uh, ancient Jews who were expecting a Messiah from the priestly line and one from the royal line. St. Luke begins his Gospel first with John the Baptist, who comes from the priestly line through his father Zechariah, and then close on his heels um, Jesus, who, of course, comes from the royal line, and we get Jesus' royal genealogy in Luke 3. On the other hand, for those people that were expecting a Melchizedek character, um, St. Luke shows us in Luke 4, uh, our Lord uh, reading from Isaiah 61 at his first sermon in Nazareth about the Spirit of the Lord being upon him and anointing him to preach good news to the poor. And that's, uh, that's what the Essenes expected Melchizedek would do, that he would be full of the Spirit and preach good news to the poor. And they also expected Melchizedek to free them from uh, Satan and from sin. And our Lord proceeds to do that in, in Luke 4 and 5. He exercises um, a man in Capernaum, and then he also forgives a man's sins, who's uh, lower down, of course, as you remember that story from a roof in front of him, and he says, your sins are forgiven, uh, go and, and be healed. And so it, it seems very striking, Deacon, that St. Luke wrote his gospel for, for his contemporaries who had these expectations, and however they expected the Messiah to come, uh, Jesus met those expectations fully. How, uh, how beautiful that is, and um, I, I think I had another question that came to mind uh, You've been on our show before. <clears throat> we uh, own, my wife and I own the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls CDs. And we've talked about this before, but we never had this much awareness of the uh, underpinnings of our faith. How did this come right. about in your thinking that you wrote this new book, Jesus in the Dead Sea Scrolls? Yes. Well, as God's Providence would have it, uh, you know, I was privileged to do my doctorate at the University of Notre Dame, which is one of the international centers for Dead Sea Scrolls research. I didn't know anything about the scrolls when I was admitted there and um, didn't really understand why they were important, even through my schooling and, and getting my doctorate. And uh, really, uh, Deacon, it was because I was always looking at the scrolls in terms of what light they might shed in the Old Testament and hadn't really pondered the light that they shed on the New, and honestly, Deacon, they shed more light on the New Testament than on the Old. Um, you know, they give us some copies of the Old Testament, but uh, what they really do is shed a strong light on the Jewish culture during our Lord's Day that, uh, you know, explains, uh, again, so many curious features that otherwise we just pass over. Let me mention another one. We read in the Gospels that Jesus told uh, Peter and John to follow a man carrying a jar of water uh, back to locate the place where the Last Supper would be celebrated. And we just 
don't even know what to do with that. What does that mean, a man carrying a jar of water? Well, that was woman's work back in the day. So if a man was carrying a jar of water, it must have meant that he was living in a community with no women. Otherwise, the women would be doing that. Well, who was it that lived in all-male community uh, in the time of our Lord? Well, it was the only Essenes, only the Essenes. So, aha, we suddenly realized that guy that Peter and John followed is almost certainly an Essene, and that's another connection there. We already mentioned, you know, the connection to Mark and Mark's mother and the the house of the Last Supper. So isn't it fascinating, Deacon? It gives us this background to kind of flesh out a fuller picture of what was really going on, you know, on the ground at some critical moments in our Lord's life and ministry and get a better sense of the the reality, the, the culture and the history of these times. Dr. Bergsma, um, I said that we that I had watched uh, four of the videos of you and Father Pivanka, Father Dave Pivanka, doing uh, an overview of your new book. Um, we were going to have him on the show, and through some technical issues, I wasn't able to get uh, the three of us connected. But um, what is it that you've done with these videos, and why uh, are are you doing this? to help people to see what's in, what's in your new book. Yes. You know, it just, it was really on father Dave's heart and my heart uh, to take this information to a broader uh, audience um, by making this set of videos. And especially during Advent, we thought it was appropriate because as you said, these Jewish monks were living a life of Advent waiting for the Messiah to come. So how, how appropriate to reflect on their life and their close connection with John the Baptist, of course, who's a very important figure for us as Catholics during Advent, as the gospel readings are from him in the second and third weeks of Advent. So we thought this would be a, a good way to reflect. And Deacon, there's so much doubt, uh, especially among young people these days. Um, you know, was Jesus real? Did he do the things he's reported as doing? Uh, are the gospels historical documents? Um, the, does the Christian faith make sense? Uh, what's the connection between Christianity and Judaism? And the school said, shed so much light on that, uh, Deacon, when, when these little details like, uh, you know, a man wearing a single linen cloth running away from the Garden of Gethsemane or a man carrying a jar of water, when, when we can put some cultural understanding behind that and we get some background from, from these little details. That's really quite impressive. That shows that the Gospels were not made up later. They're not fictional, but they were really, you know, part of the living, breathing life of the Jewish community in the first century. And it, it verifies these details in the Gospels. And so we want to share that to give people a, a sense of the confidence that they can have in in the scriptures that this, you know the scriptures are true, they're verified, and and um, also lead us deeper into reflecting on on the sacraments, you know, and, and the, the history of the sacraments, what the sacraments mean to us, and be able to give thanks for baptism, be able to give thanks for. Uh, the Lord's Supper, to understand it better, the, the Eucharist, to understand it better, um, and, and to appreciate that we have that fulfillment now in Christ, this reality that these Jewish monks have been waiting all their lives for. 
So to wrap up, uh, where can people find the video talks with you and uh, Father Dave reviewing the highlights of what we've covered in this interview and, and a lot more? Uh, and then where, sure. can, where can people find your book? Absolutely. So uh, the book is available from any online bookseller. Um, the company I work with is uh, Catholic Productions. You just go to catholicproductions.com. They have autographed uh, uh, copies of the book uh, for sale there, or, you know, all your general booksellers online are, are going to have it as well. And then for these videos, uh, just um, uh, uh, you can just check on the Franciscan University uh, website and look around for them, if you, or if you just search um, uh Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, Franciscan University. Uh, you know, you're gonna you're gonna pop up with uh, several links that will lead you uh, to watching those uh, episodes. Wonderful. We'll put links to uh, the bookseller that you mentioned and um, and to the Franciscan University uh, web lead-in, the trailer that starts the series of talks between uh, with you and Father Dave. Uh, we're very, very grateful, uh, immensely grateful for your time today. I know how busy you are as a professor there at Franciscan. Um, ask, I'm going to ask you to stay on the line after we finish here. And, uh, and uh, we just want to thank you for coming on Catholic Vitamins once again. Absolutely, Deacon. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Thank you once again, Dr. John Bergsman. I just so much enjoy him, and he's one of the most popular professors on the Franciscan University campus. I know it's not about popularity, but he's a great, great teacher, and he has spoken to us when I've attended the priest-deacon conferences and retreats at Franciscan. He's talked to us about uh, three times or four times, always enthralling and, and very interesting. D, on an earlier show or two, I mentioned that I'm doing the consecration to St. Joseph. I'm preparing for Holy Family Weekend. <clears throat> Christmas is a family time, and Holy Family Weekend is the uh, Sunday after Christmas, December 27th. This show will air ahead of then and then after that, but I wanted to uh, tell you that the reading that I did for today talks about this issue. It's about people planting the statue of St. Joseph in their yards when they want to sell their home. I preached against this. I don't know this. anybody who's done that. Yeah, you do. Yeah. <laughs> well, here's what Father Donald Calloway says. Statues represent a person and are meant to be venerated above ground, not buried in the ground. <clears throat> Place a statue of St. Joseph inside your home and pray to St. Joseph frequently for your domestic needs, including <laughs> the selling of your house. Well, I confess, I didn't know that before I did it. <laughs> I had preached about it as a deacon, and you had heard me preach about that. Uh, Which is why I didn't tell you I did it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a story from years ago, friends. Here I am preaching about this in the church where we were living back in Colorado, and when it came time for us to sell our home in Estes Park, we were having some trouble getting it sold, and I guess while I was away on a trip or something deep, planted the statue. I decided to help it along. <laughs> well, St. Joseph is now enthroned in our home, and we have a statue of him, and I pray to him daily. And we left that St. Joseph statue 
in the house. Yes, we did. For the new people. So let me just give a plug for a book, although you're going to talk about books because you have them ready to talk about. But what I'm taking is the uh, 30-day consecration to St. Joseph, The Wonders of Our Spiritual Father by Father of Our Spiritual Father. And this is written by Father Donald Calloway. And um, I'm doing this for the second time, so I endorse it. And we have a copy, as Tom mentioned earlier, of Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls. Revealing the Jewish Roots of Christianity by Dr. John Bergsma. And we have this to give away. This is anybody go- would love this. This is going to be an extended giveaway, uh, not just on our Catholic radio station, but on Catholic Vitamins. And this will go on for a couple episodes. I promise them to try to really help promote this. And the other book that we have been already uh, talking about is Arguing Religion, a Bishop speaks at Facebook and Google, and this is by Bishop Robert Barron. So he actually went to those two uh, corporate entities, and he met with staff members there, and this book is sort of a compilation about how he talks to people that are usually a little hostile or against religion. And uh, that one is, this is the last time that we'll be promoting arguing religion, and it's also being offered as a giveaway on our uh, Catholic radio station, KPIH 98.9. So if you'd like to have either one of these books, you send an email to catholicvitamins at gmail.com. Or if you're local. <laughs> Why did you point to me? Is this a continuing problem? Not, yes. Not remembering the telephone number? It is. <laughs> well, somebody in Illinois can, can call our radio station hotline, 928 363 Four one four four nine two eight three six three four one four four, and uh, just leave your contact information. D will pull a name and we'll give away a basket. Now, in this case, since we're mentioning two books, you have to let us know which one you're interested in. Right. And I mentioned Illinois. We had some Christmas cards come in, and it was so nice to hear from. We have a few listeners that. that, that... Contact us regularly. I, I always like that. You know, one Brenda in Illinois and Risa in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Thank you so others. much. Thank you for thinking of Catholic Vitamins, and uh, we enjoy being with you. We're going to do a little more music, and we'll be back to wrap up.
Once again, that was Kate Danluck making music, Praying Twice, another one of their selections, seasonal selections. The uh, I wanted to mention one more Advent-oriented activity by way of promoting renewal ministries as we've done in the past. I've been taking the weekly uh, Advent reflections every Sunday evening. I've been giving up 60 minutes, which I have watched religiously, so to speak, for, what, 30 or 40 years? Yes. And uh, I've been watching Ralph Martin <clears throat> as he gives a teaching on uh, the coming of the Christ. And uh, even if you have not picked these up before, you might go to Renewal Ministries because they offer replays of those. I think they're on YouTube, if I remember correctly. And uh, I found them very powerful. And I know that he's been getting something like 40,000, 40,000 uh, people from all over the world watching these and participating <clears throat> in the comments and uh, questions that they've been asking. So, Dee, I think we're heading towards a wrap-up, but you wanted to mention something. I want, yeah, I wanted to mention there was our friend Sandy Gregg, who used to be one of our correspondents. She's a dear, dear friend who lives with ALS. And she did it, posted a, a message, timely message on Facebook. And I was going to read it, but we we're running out of time. So I'm going to share it over to our friends of Catholic Vitamins Facebook page. If anybody is interested, they can go there and, and look at it and read it. All right. And uh, after we do our normal closing, <clears throat> excuse me, after we do our normal closing, I'm going to go out with Russ Rentler and a, a seasonal Christmas piece called Window in Heaven. So we want to say uh, Merry Christmas to those of you who uh, have been with us for a long time. And if you're brand new to Catholic Vitamins, welcome. We uh, try to share guests and topics and uh, activities in our lives that nourish faith from A to Z. And we hope everybody has a blessed Christmas. Thank you, and we'll see you in the new year. Bye. From A to Z, Catholic Vitamins. Don't enter the race without them. See you next time. This is Deacon Tom. Blessings. One off early tonight, they say something about a crazy dream. They want to head east to Bethlehem to see a baby boy king. To see a baby boy king. Maybe this is something we've been waiting for our whole lives. Maybe this is something we must see with our own eyes. Someone left a window open in heaven tonight. Someone left a window open in heaven tonight. Wake
Wake up, Daddy, I can't sleep at all. Take me down to Bethlehem Way. We'll saddle the horses and we'll ride all night. We'll get there by the break of day. We'll get there by the break of day. Well, my father was mad, but there was nothing he could do. He'd never seen me like this before. So we rode out on the shepherd's trail. We reached Bethlehem by morn. We reached Bethlehem by morn.